the girls and more. One of the important requirements of marriage, but not the only one, is to know whether you can produce children. To this end, we decided not to use contraceptives and to wait and see what the stork would bring. The bird was sitting right on our chimney pot. Hilary was conceived on our honeymoon, and fortunately the stork continued to hover because we wanted, if fate would be kind, to have more than one child. Hilary was born in Hull on 4th of January 1952, and in consequence is a Yorkshire child. The problem for children is that they have to go where their parents go, so she came to London in Highgate. Children, too, are an expense, and a medical career at that time was not well paid. We had not been well paid during our first years. Helen, as a nurse, had £4 a month, and I, as a young doctor, earned about the same. I remember a docker who came into casualty during the docker's strike, saying to me, You're all right. You get plenty. When I told him what I actually earned, he would not believe me, and probably still does not. This was in a way pocket money, for we were housed and fed, and this represented quite a lot. We accepted it because we were also being trained as well. As a result of this, we were always on the lookout for savings. During the summer, we used to go to my parents at Bexhill-on-Sea for a month. My father, when he was talking about retirement, said, We shall move to the seaside, and then you can have a holiday with us, and lodgings will be free. We did this every year until they died, for although it did not provide a great variety of holiday, I felt we had to support his original endeavour, and it meant that the children spent time with their grandparents too. It became a ritualised process, with a lot of time spent on the beach with buckets and spades and swimming in what we have since learnt was polluted sea. In fact, there was a sewer outfall pipe further up the beach from where we used to go. In many ways, it was a beneficial time for us all, as we rested and walked backwards and forwards to the beach, taking sand with us into the house. Nano, as the children called my mother, was very tolerant, although in later years she was dubbed Beryl the Peril. The beach was a mixture of pebbles and sand, the latter exposed by the outgoing tide. The promenade provided walks, access to warbling ice cream vans and shops peddling the usual mass-produced cheap goods. They all sold postcards and we felt quite safe allowing the children to go on little errands together. And as the years went by, they grew quite familiar with Bexhill's delights. The Delaware Pavilion was there, but decaying, and there was also a putting green. Alternatively, we could go to Hastings, Pevensey Castle, Rye and further afield into the Sussex countryside, often taking Nano with us. My father was not gregarious. In fact, he was rather suspicious of people and liked to sit apart from the noisy group that Nano enjoyed. He would often come in during the evening and watch television, but on the whole, he liked his own company. I learnt very little from him about his life in the war, and I believe he was caught up in the conditions so readily admitted to by soldiers today, stress syndromes. It is interesting that all his generation were the same and would not discuss the fighting with anyone. He did recount his admiration for his cousin who had killed a man when he was 15 and it seemed that my father's childhood was spent in a rougher community. He himself became a champion wrestler at university and a martial arts enthusiast with a black belt in judo. I could not discover the names of the places in Russia where he grew up or if he did tell me, they are forgotten. Because of the effect of war on his life, he was kindly remote and although presumably loving... My mother said he was very romantic. He built round himself an emotional barrier, not wanting to be too attached, for many relationships had ended in death on the battlefield, and it is not so hurtful if you fend off deep attachment. 
You had to admire him because he was also in another culture, having emigrated to England. My father had many interests, being a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, FRAS, and a trained mining engineer. While he could speak several languages, having been to universities in France and Italy before the war, he was a competent mathematician, and as his interest in wireless grew, he started teaching at night school in London. He was persuaded by Nunes, the publishers, to write textbooks completing three in all. Indeed, his mathematics of wireless was used by the Royal Navy, and he told me that it had helped finance my medical studies. During the Second World War, we were evacuated to Bangor in North Wales, and he spent each week in Manchester, coming home for weekends. He joined the Home Guard, and he went on a course at the Army Physical Training Centre at Aldershot at the age of 50, managing to keep up with many of the younger men. During it, he injured his nose. It was very swollen. He said that this was caused by a log they were throwing to each other to catch, and it landed badly. He taught unarmed camp combat to the Home Guard, and for this work he was awarded an MBE. I think it just came through the post, for I cannot recall an, any family excitement involving a trip to Buckingham Palace. In later years, my father became deaf, probably gunfire-induced, and had a hearing aid. This was not a small ear attachment as we have today, but a large box suspended on the front of the chest, a string looped around the neck, which could be held out to try to amplify the sound of someone's voice. They were in advance, but the microphone picked up a lot of noise from clothes rubbing against it, created by bodily movements. False teeth were also the rule with most of the older folk, and bathrooms would all have tooth receptacles and special brushes as well as chemicals to clean them. Powders were put on the palatial plate to improve the grip and keep the denture in place. A major problem with them was seeds, and it was impossible to eat raspberries, etc., as the seeds got under the plate. Another hazard was sores. Due to the recession of gums, and new dentures had to be made at intervals to keep up with this. One farmer we met much later on West Strait, Orkney, could rotate his false teeth in his mouth, and he did this almost subconsciously, regardless of where he was or who was there. It was heart-stopping because they would be protruded to a point where their loss onto the floor looked inevitable, but they would be triumphantly sucked back to the relief of the onlooker. He never stopped doing it, at least for the years I knew him. While we were in Rose, our greengrocer invited us to his association's annual dinner. When we got there and settled down to eat, the gentleman, large and florid, who sat opposite, smiled at me, removed his false teeth and put them on the table beside him, where they sat grinning at me throughout the meal which he ate with gusto, just using his gums. I never found out who he was, but decided that he must have had a very unsatisfactory dentist. However, I then remembered that at times my father would keep his teeth out for a few days if they were uncomfortable. One surmises that the technology and the materials used have improved since then, for people seem happier with their teeth today. Helen and I, walking in Bexhill one day, noticed a pram for sale. That was only £11. We needed a pram, and they were all much more expensive than that. There was nothing wrong with it, except that it had been in the window, and the paintwork on one side had faded. For us, that was immaterial, and so we bought it. It was not a buggy, just traditional with four wheels, handle and hood, and it did Trojan service for some years. Near us in Guiseley was a manufacturer of the Rolls-Royce of prams, the very expensive Silver Cross, and quite out of our price range. Such prams are coach-built and quite heavy, but we did afford one for Francis. 
As grandparents, we find the modern buggies our children use needed a PhD to understand how to unravel and assemble safely. Admittedly, they are light, functional, and much more manoeuvrable, although not aesthetically beautiful. A mass of struts with four sets of double, small double wheels, they seem grey, colourless and entirely functional, and now we see all kinds including three-wheelers, with contrasting very large wheels with tyres. They are both single and twin sizes, as well as some that have the infants side by side, or one behind the other. Children do face forward in the buggies, whereas the traditional pram face them backwards. It may be that if fashions change, the more traditional pram will return. It is roomy enough to store shopping and other toddlers, a useful versatility. When Hilary was a toddler, she had a namesake, Hilary Slattery, who was a typist at the hospital. We got to know her quite well and she visited us often. We took her under our wing because she was Australian. We still communicate and now she lives in Perth, Australia. Her parents, while her father was alive, came and stayed with us for a few days in Bradford. Her elderly mother is still alive. We decided that in the choice between private and public education that we would send all our children to the local Rose Primary School because we felt that since they would have to deal with all sorts of people, it was a good idea to start them off being with what some of our friends would have classed the riffraff. Hilary started at five and we first accompanied her to school because there was a main road to cross. She eventually began to pester us to be allowed to go on her own. This posed a dilemma because we did not know how streetwise she was. So I went up in the car ahead of her and parked in the side street where I could see what she did. Unlike many schools, there was not a lollipop lady to escort the children while they crossed. Hilary came up the hill to the road, looked both ways and crossed over quite sensibly. Then, to my surprise, she ran up to one of the little girls, pulled off her hat, threw it on the floor and stamped on it. We began to see our daughter in a new light. I do not think we ever understood the reasons for her assault. We were geographically in the West Riding. We wanted Hilary to go to Bradford Girls Grammar School, but she had to go through a West Riding 11 plus type of selection. The West Riding only had a few places on offer, and so interviews of pupils were conducted on the basis that as long as the group of being tested did not fail, the next one was seen, and so on. Once failure occurred, no pupils were taken from that group. Applications closed for the school concerned, and another entry would then be seen, but from a different school. The girl in front of Hilary failed, and that was that. Hilary could not then be interviewed, nor go to the grammar school. It was impossible, even had we offered to pay for her. Hilary was offered a place at Shipley Secondary School, Woodend, that had a very poor reputation. We already knew this because the children from the school often sat in the trees opposite our house at the fringe of the wood, swapping stories about those appearing in court and others who were expecting. We were not impressed. We did not feel that if we let her go there she would lift the morals of the school, but rather that she would be placed in a difficult environment that might corrupt her. So we went to look for a private school, and one that we could afford. I investigated, with the help of the BMA, a method of financing this, for it was going to be a serious and severe financial drain. However, Hilary mattered more than money. Helen consulted some of her friends who had children away at school, and so we got some idea of what was out there. Meanwhile, the BMA could arrange an endowment policy over 10 years that would provide the money, but we would be paying out for a few years after Hilary had left school. Worrying about Ruth, who would be next, we decided to take out two endowments, even though it would make us quite hard up. Having got the finance, the next thing to do was find the school. Helen thought that a school in the Lake District would be ideal. 
so we went to see one or two, dismissing them as too cold, a fire risk or grim. Finally, we finished up at St Anne's School in Windermere. We went there by appointment and were met by a small girl who told us that Mrs Peterson, the teacher we were due to see, was a little bit late, but would we like to sit in her room? She took us upstairs to it, made sure we had seats and politely left. We were impressed. We were shown over the primary section and then introduced to the headmistress, Miss Crampton. She was down to earth, a pragmatist, and had clear views of her pupils' needs, highlighting the school's defects as well as the achievements. She was a local magistrate, full of common sense, and Hilary, whom we had with us, brightened her day by telling her that she had two sisters. Francis had not yet appeared. I was evil enough to believe that the thought of two sisters providing a future income helped towards Hilary's acceptance. Helen did not approve of my cynical take. Miss Crampton indicated that she was willing to take Hilary and would try to develop her talents. She said they went on badger watches, swam in the lake and with other broader interests that the school provided, we felt that it would be a good choice. She could always go elsewhere if we, Hilary or us, did not want her to continue there. The school had superb rock garden and grounds. The house before it was turned into a school was owned by a botanist who planted a lot of rare trees, as well as being in the Lakeland setting. It was probably the best we could do within our financial constraints and we were pleased that we had found it. So decision made, Helen went off with Hilary to purchase a school uniform. The school also had a second-hand shop. She looked very smart when she paraded before us, wearing her blue blazer and tasseled beret. Hilary accepted this with good but sometimes tearful grace, especially at the end of the holidays. Looking back, we feel that she had a reasonable education. She has told us since that she was not clear why she went away to school, and so we obviously did not explain the situation well enough. We used to visit Hilary each term and have a day out. One day she wrote to us, the weekly duty letter home, to say that she had cut herself. Helen wrote back to ask her where she had cut herself, meaning which part of her anatomy. Hilary wrote back to say, at Chapel Ridding. We had to wait until the holiday to eventually find out. The day came when Hilary was going to be confirmed and we turned up for the ceremony dressed in our Sunday best. It took place in a little church down the road and we walked there through the woods with a stream on one side. We had to wait and Helen decided she needed to empty her bladder. I said, just nip into the woods. I'll keep an eye open for anyone coming. Helen disappeared, hidden but quite close. A moment later, I could see the vicar walking towards us. The vicar's coming, I hissed. Helen was not sure whether or not he was really coming or whether I was just asking about. I intercepted the vicar and started talking to him in a loud voice so that she would understand he was really there. A minute or two later, having adjusted her clothing, Helen emerged from the bushes and exclaimed, I was just admiring the view. It has been a family saying ever since, the vicar's coming. Hilary did well at school, but no A-levels. However, that made no difference to her future success. She had decided she wanted to be an occupational therapist and applied to go to the school in Oxford. They accepted her, but said as she was young, 17, they would like her to take a year out. She did six months in an orthopaedic hospital in Oswestry and then had a commercial type of job. Hilary decided to work in the local department store for six months and they took her onto the payroll. She finished up behind the jumper and woolen goods counter, which was boring, but she was amazed by people's behaviour. Serving at the counter one afternoon, her sister Ruth turned up, telling Hilary that she had run away from school. Hilary persuaded her to go back, which she did, 
and Ruth, to her annoyance, discovered that no one at school had missed her. During this period, Hilary collected the most amazing, to us, boyfriends. One was quite a bit older than Hilary, but he asked us if he could take her out. Having been away at school, Hilary had little experience of the big wide world, and he asked if we minded if we introduced her to some of the entertainments on offer. We felt we could trust him, and she had a whale of a time going to the races, dances, a nightclub and other activities. Memory plays tricks. We cannot be sure exactly what she did, but he certainly broadened her mind. He occupied this brief period of her life and there did not seem to be any ideas of forming an attachment. It was a bit like a finishing school for her. Not only fun, but also educational. She was now ready for the big wide world. After this, Hilary started her occupational therapy course and successfully qualified. It was an ideal training for her as she has always been accomplished at creating and doing and there were many interesting facets in the syllabus. In the fullness of time, she met John Puddyfoot in the college choir. He was studying maths, and they became engaged and later married. The wedding took place in the church in Rose under the auspices of the vicar, Mr White. Helen lent them her Morris Minor Traveller for their honeymoon, during which they stayed at Kirton Guest House in the Yorkshire Dales. A funny smell led them to discover a fish that had been put in the car as part of a wedding jape that also included tins tied to the bumper and decorations all over the car. We had unwisely left it out and opened to desecration. Such hijinks and high spirits are readily forgiven as is part of the ceremonial that honeymoon couples get involved in. They are easy targets. The English ceremonies are much kinder than the Scottish ones. Helen's friend Edna found when her daughter married a Scot that the groom was subjected to practices tarring and feathering and sitting half-dressed in the cold that she found difficult to accept as harmless fun. She became quite distressed by it all. In due course, the stork brought along Rachel, Helen and Hannah. Ruth, our second daughter, born on 11th of February 1954, went to school in Rose and successfully entered the girls' grammar school, which decided her educational route. The system had now changed. The government's efforts to do away with grammar schools meant that those that were well supported went private and we paid fees. This meant the only hurdle in the entry stakes was the entrance examination. I suspect Ruth would have liked to have gone away to school, but financially we would have had difficulties. However, we felt that the second endowment policy should be kept going. After the experience with Hillary, we felt we had to keep it in reserve, in case Sarah had problems. We had learnt the lesson that governments cannot be trusted. When Ruth applied for the grammar school, she was confronted by decimals which Rose Junior School had not taught her. She wrote on the exam paper, We have not done dots. Miss Luca, the headmistress at Rose Junior School, was rung up by Miss Black, the head teacher at the girls' school, to confirm this. Ruth had done well in the exam, except with this special problem, and Miss Black wanted to be sure they had not been taught decimals. Finding this was true, she passed and Ruth started at the school. We arranged that Ruth went by bus to school every day. We could have taken her by car, but we felt that she should learn to get about by herself and be self-sufficient, as this was the rule for them all. You can overprotect and nanny your children. Furthermore, there could be occasions when I might have had an urgent visit to make, which would have upset their getting to school on time. Ruth did well at school, but she was a bit of a rebel and also, we suspect, slightly idle. Her philosophy seemed to be to do just enough, and she always did. We did not worry about her grades, only about whether she had passed or not. Miss Black heard her in the office one morning about some peccadillo. She said, Ruth, you cannot get by in life on charm alone. I shall try, Miss Black. 
I shall try, was her response. Ruth edited the school magazine and wrote poems. She was very friendly with an Asian girl called Ranuka and through her made friends with an assortment of multiracial children, saving some of them from drugs, she had told us. It was a mild worry, but we relied upon the fact that she had a good deal of common sense. Ruth decided she wanted to be a teacher. Helen thought she had a gift for this as she watched her dealing with children at our parties. Ruth got her A-levels and went to Hummerton Teacher Training College in Cambridge. When she set off to Cambridge, we liked the children to do their own thing rather than do it for them. Helen's last words to her were, Are you sure you've got enough money? Of course I have, was the reply. A few hours later, Ruth found she was tuppence short of her train fare. As she discovered this, the man selling her the ticket was confronted by two tearful but appealing eyes, telling him of her plight. His soul melted and the ticket was supplied. When Ruth got to Cambridge with a large suitcase, now penniless, she found she had two miles to walk. Her distress was noticed by a policeman and he assisted, we believe, with police car transport. Ruth fell off her bicycle a bit later on, knocking herself out just outside the boys' college. Some of the students came out to find her flat out and unresponsive, so they carried her into one of their rooms and laid her on the bed. She regained consciousness, but they insisted she stay the night and fully recover before going back to her digs. There was a discussion about having an x-ray, but she vetoed that. The episode was very sensibly handled by the boys. We've always believed that Ruth has a very excellent fairy. One evening, she went to get a new padlock for her bike. The one she chose was large and heavy, but she found she could fit it into her glove as a convenient way to carry it. She was passing a parked vehicle when the door opened. The man in it tried to grab her, but he got more than he bargained for. She struck his face with the padlock in the glove and was able to run to a nearby house. While in Cambridge, Ruth met Paul Flecknell. The first we knew about this was when she asked me what I thought because she said it would be cheaper for both of them to live in one flat rather than two. We agreed and not long after they decided to become engaged. We planned a celebratory lunch which was slightly delayed because Paul wanted to ask me formally for her hand in marriage. This was a delight to give. They got married in the college chapel even though it was not registered for marriages as they were friendly with the chaplain. He said there had not been a marriage there for 25 years. They needed to have a registry office ceremony the day before, during which we all disgraced ourselves by being overcome by laughter because of the antics of the lady registrar, who after each of her movements kept saying, humph, accompanied by a shrug of her shoulders. I could see Ruth's shoulders shaking as she had to try and control herself. The ceremony over, Helen and I prepared the chapel for the wedding, buying masses of flowers from the market. We arranged them tastefully, Helen is a good flower arranger, into appropriate pots that were stored in a hut near the chapel. It had on the wall a big red button. I idly pressed it, I cannot tell you why, and it gave out a great clang on a bell, bringing the vicar running out. I was profusely apologetic. The next morning, Helen and I decided we had better check the chapel flowers. To our horror, they were all drooping and collapsed, having used all their water. We refreshed them and hoped all would be well. It was. The college caterers asked if they could do the food because they rarely did more than routine cooking. We let them plan the menu and the wine, which turned out to be surprisingly cheap and excellent in all respects. Our guests could assemble on the lawns and in the chapel the pews faced each other so we sat in opposite groups. Holy Communion was administered as part of the service. Paul's parents wanted the wedding to be formal dress, so I walked from the hotel to the college dressed in a Mossbrough's best striped trousers, tails and grey top hat. 
A coach drew up alongside and stopped, and I found myself being photographed by the passengers. A whole load of Japanese tourists. Helen wore a Bernard Klein green outfit with a wide-brimmed hat and looking very fetching. It was a sunny day and we all enjoyed it, although at first Ruth was very tense. I heard the vicar saying to her before they went into the chapel, Ruth, you're supposed to be enjoying yourself, and I'm sure she did. Ruth qualified as a teacher, but had to move about with Paul as he pursued his career. She was able to earn a bit at times through typing. While she was waiting to go to college, Helen enrolled her in a Yorkshire Post typing course, and having made the daily trips to Leeds, Ruth said it was the most useful thing she had done, and that she could now also do typing for Paul when he needed it. She eventually taught full-time after they had finally settled in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. In due course, the stork brought along Laura and Robert. Sarah was born on 6th of September 1955. We were now living in Rose, and Sarah was born while we were still living in Val and Brian's house. Although by this time we had bought the hills and were waiting to move in. So Sarah spent most of her childhood there and went to Rose Primary School when she was five, like the others. She was not taught well enough and in consequence did not reach the standards necessary for the grammar school. So we had an interview with Miss Luca, nicknamed Filthy Luca by the girls, and agreed to her proposal that Sarah stay down a year. She resented this and it also meant she was a year older than her contemporaries, but she had no trouble getting into the grammar school where she made some very good friends. We bought Sarah a guitar as she wanted to learn it and Helen found her a music teacher, Mr Skripchik, a Hungarian who lived in the Asian quarter next to a carpet shop run by some Indian men. He gave her lessons once a week for a year or two and she learnt to play quite rapidly. When she sat down to play, Sarah told Mr Skripchik that she needed something to rest her foot on. He gave her an empty tin. During the time he was teaching her and they were talking, she would often tell him that she needed things. His repost on one occasion was to say to her, and she has never forgotten it, you do not need it, Sarah, you just want it. He had very little, so she could see the contrast and the reality of real need. Helen would go to fetch Sarah, ensuring she arrived before the end of the lesson because she did not want her to have to be in the street on her own, as it was an awful neighbourhood, or so it seemed to her. It was a narrow street with terraced houses on either side, and the carpet shop had problems in showing customers their wares. Helen would watch them come into the street with a carpet or a rug and then roll it across the road to show it off. The customers would stand around looking and examining the wares, then they would all go back into the shop. Bradford had a wave of Indian and Pakistani immigration and they settled into the cheaper parts of the town. Mr Scripchick's road was just off Lum Lane. This was originally a red light area, but it was being diluted by the invaders and developing into an Indian quarter. The community began to establish their own shops and wore their native clothes so it became quite a colourful area and a source of ingredients for those Bradfordians who were becoming interested in Indian cuisine. Yorkshire folk were widening in their menus and now such items were available and on sale. As the years progressed, these areas consolidated, especially as Indian families began to find that they could buy a corner shop, keep it open for long hours and make it profitable. The Yorkshire owners kept to limited hours and often had to employ staff, a combination which meant that profits were small. By contrast, the Indian family manned the shop and did not need wages, as it was all in the family. They were also prepared to stay open until midnight, thereby attracting extra custom, and so they were successful and made themselves a good living. As others got to hear of their success, they began to buy corner shops in other parts of the city. They were generally successful because they were hard-working and had a flair for business, as well as now having a large customer base. 
They also bought large houses in areas now of faded gentility, rapidly filling them with tenants. They were little gold mines, totally unregulated and full to bursting with every space utilised for their customers to live or just sleep in. Even the roof spaces were used. Because of her interest in music, Sarah gathered three friends together and they formed a group. They called themselves the Gospel Makers and performed concerts in various church halls, churches and other venues, including their own school. They had a very pleasing sound. Helen was their groupie, if that is the right word. She had her own car, a 2CV Citroen, roomy enough to accommodate them all and their guitars. They had a lot of fun and we would often have them rehearsing in our house or using it as a focal point for Helen to run them around to their concert venues. There were many highlights. At one concert for the elderly at a Catholic church social, the party went like a bomb and Helen was puzzled by the rapid degree of merriment. However, she discovered the reason when she went into the kitchen and saw the priest filling each cup up with an added slug of rum, whiskey or gin before distributing it round to the oldies. They also made friends with a clergyman called Mr Owen, who ran three churches in Northamptonshire and was a friend of Helen's uncle Bernard and Auntie Betty, who were retired and lived near Kettering. Bernard had been a shoe salesman travelling the world. They had a lovely bungalow with a swimming pool where the girls went swimming. His practice was to have a double gin, then swim a few lengths of the pool as his exercise for the day. They were very religious and staunch churchgoers. The girls enjoyed being there and had a lot of fun. One day, Uncle Bernard went into the kitchen to help put out the food. Auntie Betty was bent over the oven, and when she got up, he had a severe shock as she was wearing a hideous mask. She also would go shopping and leave little notes in the genre of, I have left you, do not come and look for me. Many such tales were told about them at major family gatherings. Their generation suffered but did not complain. Uncle Bernard was in the army for four years during the war. They had no children. He arranged himself a better-than-average pension, but with the rise in inflation it reduced in value and they were forced to sell the bungalow because they could not afford to stay there. Uncle Bernard was a diabetic, which contributed to narrowed heart arteries and his eventual death from a coronary thrombosis in his 60s. We think Auntie Betty eventually left all the money she was in, had inherited and built up out of her own pension, she was a teacher, to the church, much to the annoyance of her prospective heirs. Mr Owen had the girls along to give concerts and they all developed a very friendly attachment. He liked playing jokes and his friendship with Bernard and Betty was based on this mutually shared enjoyment of humour. He did not mind what people thought of him and to the girls' amusement he preached a short sermon after one of their concerts wearing one of their straw hats. They kept up their friendship for some years, but unfortunately he had a severe coronary and was never able to regain full health. The church in its wisdom decided that he should semi-retire and posted him to Spain, where he spent a few quiet years towards the end of his life in ministry to expats. The highlight of the Gospel Makers was a trip to Radio Leeds to record their songs on tape. Helen took them over and they sang several songs that they were to hear being played over the air in following years. They found it an odd experience because the studio and recording rooms were all a bit run down. However, it was a real achievement. Inevitably, school exams and A-levels meant that their time became absorbed with studying and the gospel makers gave their last concert to the school, which was very well received. Three of the four girls are still in contact, meeting up occasionally. For several years, Sarah had a boyfriend who seemed to be in our house a lot. He was about 14 when the romance started and virtually became a member of the family coming in and out. We lost the feeling that this was a serious romance, but then suddenly there was an engagement ring and the prospect of a wedding. 
As a father looking fondly at all my little darlings and watching them grow up into attractive young ladies, the wedding aspect did not loom large. Then, as marriages started, it turned out that the father of the bride paid for the the ceremony. We had three weddings in three years, a slight strain on the exchequer. Jonathan Dunn's parents also wanted a top hat wedding, which took place at Rose Church. By this time, I had a relationship with a caterer in Leeds, who was involved with the College of GP's functions, so he gave us a good deal with the food. Helen and I had now got into the swing of providing a wedding on a limited budget. We asked friends to take photographs and did the flowers and all we could ourselves. Wellesley Betts provided the car. He had a rover, which we cleaned and polished, putting a clean rug on the back seat and adorning the bonnet with white ribbons. He even wore a chauffeur's cap. Wellesley came to the house to collect Sarah and me, but before we got to the church, he stopped the car. This was at my request, because I wanted to say, as I did to each of my daughters, look, although we've got to this point... Unless you're really sure you want to go ahead, we can stop here. I will not mind if you want to cancel, for although we've spent money on the arrangements, your happiness is the aim, and not a marriage you feel you have to go on with simply because the momentum of the occasion has taken over. So we go on provided you are sure. Sarah said she was, and so we were delivered to the church and walked down the aisle together. There she joined hands with Jonathan, and they marched into their future with high hopes and our blessing. During my speech, I remarked about inflation and the rising cost of weddings. Frances was about 14, and I pointed out that by the time she would be getting wed, the cost would be very much more. So I appealed to the audience and said that I was ready for offers for her hand, providing the wedding took place soon. She took it in good part, bless her. In due course, the stork brought along Amy, Tom and Henry. Unfortunately, things with Jonathan didn't work out, and they divorced. Sarah is now happily remarried to Chris Malloy and they live in Ormskirk. Chris is a super chap and a keen sportsman, particularly golf. He is an expert at DIY, being a trained carpenter, and he acts as the representative for an engineering company. Frances was born on 12th of April 1961 at Shipley Maternity Home. She was a large baby, about £8, and was a space-age girl, for as she was emerging into the world, the Russian Sputnik was in orbit. I was looking after the children and cooking their food. I prepared a lunch to be proud of, roast beef and all the trimmings, and I had opened a tin of peas to augment the vegetables. We did not have deep freezes, so it was either the real thing that I had not had time to buy, or the tinned variety. As the children started to eat the meal, there was a serious complaint. No gravy. I had by this time spoilt any attempt at making gravy because everything was now in the sink. As I looked round, I spotted the discarded tin the peas had been standing in, on the work surface. It still had some green fluid in it, so seizing the moment, I got out the gravy boat and poured the tin remains into it. The children regarded this as a great achievement, and green gravy entered the annals of family events. I took the girls to the nursing home, but they were not allowed in, owing to visitor restrictions, and so they stood in a little row on the opposite side of the street, looking up at the window, and I held Francis up for them to see. Five years had elapsed since the arrival of Sarah, and Francis was, as Auntie Mary Daniels told us, an autumn leaf. This apparently was a common description for an afterthought by the stork. Seeing babies can make other women broody, and after seeing Francis, our friend Pat Wilson announced that she quite liked the idea of a late baby, and she was going to have one as well. This she did, a boy called David. A late baby is a delight, because there is now a very experienced mother, and the older children want to help and are old enough to look after themselves. Moreover, 
it is useful for them to have the experience of a very young baby to manage. Helen's young stepbrother Joe came to visit and watched the baby being breastfed. Milk was dripping out of the nipple not attached to the baby and he thought it was being blown out, not appreciating the mechanisms of milk production. Frances was soon mobile and she had a French baby bouncer called a U-Palar, suspended from a hook in the ceiling on an elastic band. She could bounce up and down and swing from place to place. She became adept at grabbing things while on the move, so we learnt to restrict her access. She was soon a small infant running round and playing with her older sisters. Eventually she followed them to the infant school and then to the grammar school. Frances had two problems. Difficulty in spelling, she did it phonetically, and also in mathematics. Helen arranged some coaching from a master at the boys' school. He gave Frances a test and said that she had worked out the most amazing and complicated ways of doing some of her sums. She passed all the necessary exams in the end, so all was well that ended well. Frances was always interested in wildlife and insects, and we spent many a day searching out cowpats and dung beetles that had mites, which she sent to Mr Hyatt at the Natural History Museum. He was excited because she had found a beetle with a record number of mites, six, and it was interesting to watch them because they used the beetle as a bus, hopping on and off and doing short journeys in between. When Paul was staying with us in Bradford, we dissected our tortoise that had died. It was quite astonishing because there was very little inside it. Each leg had a small lump of muscle attached to the side shell, and near the neck was the stomach and guts, but the rest was liver and lungs which took up most of the space. You could see that a tortoise on its back might well suffocate from the pressure of the liver. This episode took place shortly before putting our cat, Quasha, down. It coincided too with the end of the guinea pigs. We kept these outside in a luxurious hut, insulated with polystyrene sheets inserted between plywood internal and external walls. It had what we called the iron curtain, wire netting, isolating the male, for we had had too many litters. During one of the early birth episodes, the baby got stuck. The mother had gnawed at it, obviously not knowing what it was. So I pulled it out and afterwards she managed quite happily. It's obvious that unless there is a group and the members can share experiences, they will on their own have no concept of birth, nor probably connect it with coupling with the male. Sadly, some animal got the guinea pigs and they were all killed. But we were never sure how this happened because they'd been outside for a few years and had always been safe. It was a fitting time for this to happen because the children were all now leaving home. Frances applied to go to Imperial College to do her studies, telling her mother that she stood a very good chance of going there because she discovered they were taking female students for the first time. Although she did not quite make the grades, she was nevertheless accepted. Frances was with us in Orkney by this time and rang them up from there as we were not sure when she got her results whether they were adequate. She had been doing some studies with aphids that they thought were advanced for her educational level and said that they wanted her partly because of these. When we went to Orkney, Frances was quite happy to do her last year at the grammar school, remaining behind and staying with a family. Several of our friends offered to have her and she chose Pearson Crabtree, her buddy on our walks, who had had her on his lap when she was 18 months old and who came on holiday with us for several years. He had been unlucky, his first wife dying of liver disease during the war. Several years later, he married his secretary. He had a factory, but she developed breast cancer and died within a year or two. We were very friendly with them and with his son Christopher and daughter Jennifer, who worked in the factory as well. This meant that they saw each other all the time and did not want to holiday together, so we suggested that he come with us on our holidays. 
He was good company and the children loved him, so it became the annual fixture. Pearson was a man of strong character and religious beliefs and so was able to manage these major setbacks in his life. He was the treasurer of Eastbrook's Methodist Hall in Bradford and entertained visiting ministers. He usually gave them some Crabtree's ginger wine, no connection with him, Pearson Crabtree, as a joke. He assured them it was non-alcoholic when in fact it was a wine of 20% proof. He still had a wind-up cine camera which he would bring with him on holiday but as he got older he was less capable of using it. He also had some ancient fishing tackle that broke easily and so we threw it away after finding some gulls caught up in a piece he had dropped. He also had a tripod for his camera and one evening in Ireland stood beside the railway line photographing the sunset. If you are in the path of an approaching train it is impossible to hear it because the noise has not yet reached you. So Pearson was at risk, not realising it. But fortunately he was far enough away to have nothing more than a fright as it thundered past very close to him. We all learnt the lesson. Frances journeyed between London and Orkney, often finding herself with time to spare in Wick, where she would wander round the shops, loitering with intent. One cold day, a lady from one of the shops invited her in and insisted on being a refuge for Frances on her future journeys. Frances discovered that fellow passengers could be odd. One entertained her with violin melodies on the train, and another with lighthouses I have known, drunkenly on the plain. She was one of a rare breed of students travelling long distances to her university. Frances lived in university premises during the term, sharing a flat with other students. It had in the past been a street of upmarket houses, and today they are very expensive. She gained her degree and went to Bath University to do her PhD, meeting Nick Platt, whom she later married. They lived in America, St Louis, before eventually returning to Oxford, where they live at present. Frances is a glycoscientist, and Nick, also a PhD, is researching lymphocyte behaviour. Frances' godmother, Mary Turner, was a keen horsewoman. She took Frances under her wing and arranged for her to learn to ride, an interest which has remained. Frances now has two horses and Izzy, her daughter, is also keen on riding. Another of Frances' pursuits was taxidermy and she visited a taxidermist in Keeley to gain some insights into the craft. She started with a little boy's hamster and gradually took on bigger projects, finishing with a scarf, shag, in Orkney, and finally an otter that had been caught in a creel. She presented it to Alec Costey, who had had it in the deep freeze for three years, and Tommy made a wooden mahogany case for it. Background scenery was added to stick on the wood behind the otter, and that and a glass front made it worthy of being put in a museum. It looked very lifelike. We have been blessed with four lovely daughters and their progeny. All have pursued rewarding careers and done well. We are proud of them, not that we would mention it, and feel they are a lasting legacy of us and the family life, we all developed as the years went by.